This is Neijing Now, prioritizing well-being. Neijing is the vitality that shields us from disease. Neijing Now, demystifying medicine, cultivating resilience, empowering host resistance, promoting primary prevention. I'm Dr. Jayshree Chander, and I welcome you to another short clip exploring Neijing Now. This short clip is dedicated to all those students who didn't graduate this year. It's a real pleasure to have Ms. Felicide Madupe and Ms. Katie Lanahan back with me on Neijing Now. In our last conversation, they both shared their experiences as teachers in West Contra Costa County, California, one of the lowest performing school district in California. And California's public school system ranks number 48 out of 50 in the United States. I've invited Felicide and Katie back to share with us what they've witnessed as the challenges and obstacles that their students face in getting educated, in learning. Just to start off with, it's actually a real achievement for students to graduate from high school because a lot of students are either failing or they're not placed in the right classes at the right time. So come senior year, they realize that they don't have enough elective credits and it's too late. And so they're graduating in the summer after taking summer school or they failed algebra one five times and they can't find a way to make up those credits. So on the most basic level, without even getting into like the emotional aspects of our students, just not having enough course classes open for getting their credits to graduate high school. We're way short on counselors. Our counselors are overloaded with work to deal with discipline or to deal with kids getting into the right classes or class switches. It's just really difficult for our students to get the basic support that a lot of us just took for granted that we just got because it was a given. You mean in in a more middle class setting? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this year I started a college club after school just helping students who I know as seniors with the college application process because for me my mother sat down and, and guided me through the process without her I never would have gone to college who knows what I would have ended up doing so just helping them like how do you write a personal statement what does a resume look like when are the due dates how do you answer these questions appropriately just so that they have a little bit of support to help guide them through the process. And you're just doing that out of the kindness of your heart. The school's not paying you to do that. Yeah, no, that's just me with students after school, helping them where I can. So You're so great, Katie. You've named a bunch of things, but the basics of not even just having enough teachers at your school. Yeah, absolutely. And so we have a pretty low four-year graduation rate at our school. What is it? Around 60 or 70%. What have you witnessed, Felicity, amongst your students in terms of the challenges and obstacles they face in learning? For one, there's just the fact that skill gaps are preventing their students from being confident in their own selves and their own ability to be successful in school and to being successful beyond school. Basic reading skills. Or students who just have really huge math gaps, and it's way more common to have math gaps. Even my highest performing students will argue over why three divided by a six cannot be two. You were hesitating there for a minute, too. I know, I know, because I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) I'm going to get this example really, really wrong. (laughs) Um, But, yes, there's this profound... Did you say three divided by six cannot be two? One half. Yeah, let me clarify that. So, in chemistry, we have to do a lot of proportions, a lot of different sort of math, basic algebra type of stuff, and so where you might have three divided by six. Three divided by six is one half. It is not two, but (laughs) I will have to argue with my highest performing students, most confident students about 
why three divided by six is one half and it is impossible for it to be two just because they just really just don't understand fundamentally what a fraction is even though they've been like high performing a's maybe all throughout their school career but there's just these really strange gaps strange to me that almost sounds like they're getting a's when they shouldn't be getting a's that's very possible you know that's just like the dumbing down of grading the standards for getting a grade have just been progressively getting lower and lower and easier and easier to get a good grade so for many of my students they were just reported getting good grades just because they were behaviorally amenable for their teachers like if you were quiet and more or less turned in all your work whether it was wrong or right you could get a good grade depending on the class that's just one of the challenges our student population is majority latino with another big subgroup of African-American students and another big subgroup of mostly Southeast Asian students and some Samoan students. With this diversity, there's not enough awareness and support around our diversity. And so we have racial tensions that are clearly part of our classroom environment all the time. A lot of exchanging Black versus Latino stereotypes. There's something called stereotype threat, and Katie can probably really explain this way better than I can, but students have really become invested in stereotypes around their race or ethnic identity, and that affects their performance in schools. It's probably one of the reasons why we have black males performing the worst in our school system. Can you explain that? Okay, so there's this thing called stereotype threat. It's all based off of some studies done down in Stanford where they took groups of students who had similar performances on tests to get into Stanford. Some of them were white, some of them were black, some of them were Asian. When they told the students, this is just testing your general ability and that's all, the students all performed about the same level. When they took a similar group of students and told them, historically, white and Asian people do much better on this test, African Americans perform worse. Same test, similar group of students, all of a sudden, African Americans scored much lower than whites and Asians scored much higher. When you know the stereotype about you, you start to play into it. And so the idea that on a standardized test, such as the standardized test the students take every year are the SATs, when the students are aware that historically their demographic does worse, it psychs them out and they actually do worse. The self-fulfilling prophecy. Those dynamics show up every day in class. Like you'd have black students say, well, I'm not supposed to know this because I'm black. Or I'd ask for a question in class and everyone would like turn to the Asian kid and like be like, hey, well, he'll probably know the answer. Or because I'm Mexican is an excuse why, you know, you didn't do your homework or whatever. Or because I'm black is an excuse why you didn't do your homework or why you didn't do well on the test. For real, people will actually give that as their excuse or the answer. Very, very, very much for real. (laughs) Joking in a way that's not necessarily joking because it's a constant excuse. It's a constant go-to to explain behavior or to explain low test scores, low anything. Students, I feel like, really internalize this about themselves. Wow, that's really sad. I mean, kind of to switch gears a little bit, I would say that our school, a lot of people have behavioral issues. You know, students being disrespectful, students being off the wall, yelling, throwing things, running out of classroom, disengaging. Like, there's a whole spectrum. And some classrooms are well-managed and some aren't. What's happening is the kids who are crazy or the kids who are really acting out are the ones that really have some crazy stuff going on in their lives and they are reacting either for attention or to forget what's going on. My first year teaching, I had this student who was wild. She would say things about me in class. She would yell. She would be insulting. She'd make fun of me in front of other students. And I would have all these talks with her. And I could tell that she was a good kid. And I started doing this thing where I was giving positive phone calls home. And I was like telling students, listen, I want to make positive phone calls home. If you think you had a good day, let me know. So this student who was unruly in my class many days had a good day. And it wasn't a great day. Like she took her note 
months and did her work more so than she usually did. So I called her dad and let him know, like, your daughter did a great job today, blah, 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 blah. Wasn't even that great. Their parents had never gotten a positive phone call home from her, so they got so excited. They were ecstatic. From that day on, she was one of my best students in class. She pulled her grades from consistent Ds to high Bs and As. And it was amazing. She became my, my biggest advocate only because of this one small thing that I did. She's a student who I became very close with, both her and her sister. And the next year, she's coming into my room bawling and crying, like just hysterical. And, you know, I started to learn about her home situation, having conversations like what was going on in my classroom, the way you're acting out. Like, is this the way that you're coping? And she would absolutely. And so school became a place she was able to distract herself with the help of her classmates and sometimes at my expense and so you know once I showed her that I cared you know flashly then had her as a student the following year and we were both people that she trusted I started looking at all students differently every student acting out is is a cry for help and too many times I'm guilty of this myself the kids kicked out of class or dealt with the least amount of compassion when they are the ones who need the most. But it's just when you have 40 kids in a class and they're distracting everyone else from learning that one student, sometimes there's nothing you can do in that moment of time because you don't, we don't have the resources as teachers to adequately help them in that moment of need. Wow. That is really beautiful. One phone call changed her whole life. You know, what you say about students acting out, that it's sort of a cry for compassion I believe that to be true for almost every human being. When they're acting out, it's because they need some attention. My response is always like, attention is pretty free, so just give it to them. Felicity, do you have anything to say about the social climate that students are coming from? Our students are going through a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Especially my second year when I was like kind of honed my skills of forming relationships with students and I got to hear a little bit more about their backgrounds. It was amazing to think about how many students were dealing with pregnancies, for instance, and having to deal with, you know, whether they're going to test that with their parents or not and how that was going to affect their schooling and what decisions they were going to make around that. How many students were dealing with either direct violence to themselves or their families? So many students would walk in talk about, well, my cousin was shot this weekend, or I went to this funeral, I went to that funeral. This is like the majority of my students having these experiences. When a student of mine, who was a student my first year, died in a car accident, and I have his cousin, and I have his girlfriend in my classroom, and they're dealing with these emotional experiences in the school environment. Like, it's it's all part of this, and here we have resources in our school to some degree, but to have a life that is filled with that much trauma, constant, consistent trauma, there just like has to be so much more support. A car accident can happen in any neighborhood. Yeah. These kids were racing. This is a very common cultural perspective that somehow your occupation needs to be separate from your quote unquote life. Students, their occupation is learning. My experience is that your occupation is part of your life and your life impacts your occupation and your occupation impacts your life. I think it's unrealistic to think that people's lives would not have an impact on their education or they wouldn't bring that to the school. Basically, what I'm hearing you say is that because this neighborhood or this county is so ridden with violence and poverty, there needs to be some sort of allowance within the educational system, some space and time offered to manage what is brought into the classroom. Absolutely. We have all these students who are bringing their lives forth. There's no space to really deal with that in their occupation unless they're either seeking help or they're referred. You're seeing all the symptoms of trauma 
it's not my space to address those. So I have to deal with the symptoms, but not address the underlying causes. It's like huge tension there of like, I know you're all suffering, but we're going to pretend that that's not happening right now. And now we're going to learn chemistry. It's a little bit like you have productivity pressures and productivity has become the national mantra. And this is true in every workplace. There isn't the leeway for people's humanity, but particularly for children, it's impossible to learn if you're not relaxed and calm and open and receptive. I think another big issue is this trauma is common or they're used to it. What people see is, oh, our kids are really resilient or they bounce back really quick. In three years of teaching, we've lost three students. And each time the expectation is, well, students will still come in and they'll still learn and and it'll be okay. These kids are channeling these emotions. They're holding on to it. And so we're dealing with these behaviors over and over and over and over again. We're thinking that they're just dealing and they're coping and they're fine because they don't exhibit the signs that are typical like crying or uncontrollably you know after the car accident kids in my first period class who I knew were friends with him were there and they were doing the same old same old that they do every day what other people saw was oh that they are resilient but what I see is this is why we have behavioral issues is because our students are holding on to all the stress in their bodies for so long and this is why we have so many health problems in our school this is why we have obesity problems in our country I mean it is so connected with everything else and it's ridiculous for us to assume just because they're not reacting the way that we would see ourselves reacting doesn't mean that they themselves are not reacting. Culturally, we have a habit of not showing our emotions and that's sort of rewarded, actually. It sounds to me like when there's been a death in the community, either through gun violence or domestic violence or in the incidence of drag racing, the school also just tries to carry on as if nothing happened. The school does not actually take a moment and offer a time and a space for people to grieve. Or even when we have violence at school, fights at school are very frequent occurrences and there isn't a pause. Wait, why are we fighting at school? Let's address the issue of the fact that we have violence is encouraged by the student population. You should see the way students swarm a fight. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely absurd. I've seen kids run out of my classroom so they can go see a fight. We don't address that. There's so many underlying issues nipping at the minds of our students constantly. That's not an easy environment to learn in. It's not teaching our students how to live in a peaceful society. Again, a lot of that responsibility falls back on the teachers, but when we're so short-staffed and overworked as it is, it's hard for us to, I mean, we're also desensitized. I remember an instance where there was a lockdown due to a shooting right next to our school, and I thought nothing of it. I I held the students in class. When it was over, I cleaned up, took my stuff home, left school. I didn't even feel like an increase in my stress level or heart rate or anything. And yet this murder had happened literally feet from where my car was parked. And it wasn't until we had left that space and I'm sitting in a movie theater watching a pretty intense movie that I started having like a visceral reaction. Me and my first year teaching, having not experienced a lot of that and just imagining the cumulative effects on students. The kids like to look hard in front of their classmates because because that's what they've been taught to look like, and they don't have better role models to tell them otherwise. There's cumulative stress on the teachers, too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you guys have any solutions? This is the hardest thing for me as a teacher is that it's a community effort. It's not just a school. And so I think the school could do a better job of integrating itself into the community. But for me, I keep on questioning myself, where could I have the most impact? Is it like working for nutrition of our students? Is it working towards mental health of our students? Is it actually educating the actual student? Is it working with the community? Is it changing district policies? You know, I mean, there's just so many avenues that affect the lives of these students and they all have to come together 
at once if we want our students to be getting a quality education or be in an environment where they could even access the education that's at their fingertips. Do you think there might be a certain attitude in society at large that we don't really care if these students do okay? We don't actually want them to do okay because really we just want to keep them where they are. Absolutely. I mean, Richmond's only 10 miles from Berkeley. It's very easy for people in Berkeley to say, well, that's in Richmond and Richmond is dangerous. And I reflected on this a lot with the recent shootings. You know, all of a sudden we're like outraged and hurt and afraid when these things are happening in public places that we feel safe. And yet well over 10 people have been shot and killed in Richmond this year. And we're not outraged by that. And it's close, but yet it's in a place that we expect that. And so we're not advocating for gun policies based on those shootings there's so many bleeding hearts in berkeley i can't believe people aren't outraged or doing things and again it's in a place where that's expected and as long as it's there and doesn't bleed into here then we're fine i guess i don't want to say something like it's on purpose but there's a reason why the students that are in my school and at a school with such limited resources look a certain way there's a reason why their incomes are a certain way and there's a reason why their graduation success is so low you know they're fulfilling a certain level of society and they're not growing from that level they're essentially just fulfilling the lower level of entry-level jobs in our world and society i have students who don't have dreams there's a student who is just like, oh, I don't know what to do. I guess I'll just be a janitor, you know, like my mom is. Or I have students who are just really, really practical, and it upsets me. Because so I'm like, you don't have to be practical in high school. You can actually think big, and you can actually think about being an astronaut. It's still cool to be an astronaut when you're in 10th grade. Why, why are you thinking about being a phlebotomist? Well, I mean, not to knock janitors or phlebotomists. <laughs> they serve. They're important people to keep our spaces clean and to help us do our blood tests and yeah. Not to knock those careers at all, but I think I would be hard pressed to find someone who's just like, this was my dream. This is what something that I sought out or that someone in that position that was like, this is what I want my child to do. And not because those are lowly positions, but because I don't know, our dreams are always something that's like kind of out of reach. <laughs> those are very much within reach. What I'm hearing more is that students aren't able to identify what their talents are, what their strengths are, what their skills are, and they're not getting an opportunity to nurture those. Once you're able to know what you're good at, then you are able to want to continue forth with that, no matter what kind of a job title it leads to. But you will feel proud of it. You'll be doing what you think you're good at. Rather than it just being some de facto career. So like having a desire to manifest your own magnificence. Exactly. And I think ultimately what it comes down to is our students, there's just a lack of nurture, period. Education is a place for nurture. It's when you want people to form their opinions and their minds and their thinking patterns. And I think if they're going to have any solutions, we need to fundamentally rethink how the education system is structured. Because right now it's structured to make products and not make human beings. But what if our entire school system was meant to support students and education around the idea of nourishing human beings who were going to like affect our world in the future? <laughs> it would be amazing. Well, I think fundamental change would require funding. <laughs> but I also think that the schools don't necessarily need to be responsible for everything, for the nurturing, forming opinions, having ideas, creating dreams. I think the family should take primary responsibility for those things. And perhaps the schools are a place to get skills and acquire a fund of knowledge that's necessary for then nurturing your talents. 
what happens when you work in a school where kids are grown up in foster care or their parents have passed away or they're living with aunts or uncles or friends or their babies had babies, you know, like you're 16, 15, 16, having a kid. And now that kid's 15, 16 and we're, you know, working several jobs. And so now that their parents don't care, or don't love them. It's just that they never learned how to raise a kid or whatever happened that was tragic. These kids don't have these tight-knit family communities and many do so I don't want to speak broadly in any terms but sometimes the case is that the responsibility does lie on us because there is nobody else and many of the kids actually are even homeless or have had periods of homelessness it definitely just has to be more of a holistic effort at the very least to be coming to a school in Richmond their families are probably fairly low income and working really really hard to provide for their families and I see that hard work Students who have good supportive families who are working hard to provide to them do really well. But we're a community. We got to help each other out because it's all of our future. No matter what, those kids grow up and do something, become something, become somebody. And is that someone that you want to interact with on the street? Well, you're part of that. I would actually argue that the kids are already something. They are already human beings that we are engaged with. We want them to have the best possibility for this moment now to access everything that they deserve. One of the issues is how we fund schools. It's based on neighborhoods and property values and property taxes. It really struck me. I have a friend who's French and she just moved back to France to take up a teaching job again. And she's working in a school that is primarily attended by recent immigrants and kids who come from low-income families. The French public school system allocates more money to those schools because they figure that the kids in higher income neighborhoods have enough resources. The neighborhoods with the lower income, more recent immigrants, they need more attention. So their class sizes are intentionally smaller and they are given more resources to help those kids join the rest of France. That's something that our students notice. Kids make those connections. Why is it that we're the worst performing school and they're taking money away? That's backwards. And how do you make something better by taking things away from it? And I understand that. Well, I don't understand it. It's a cultural merit-based philosophy. Like in order to continue getting funding, you have to show us that you deserve it. These kids deserve it. Whether or not the school is working hard or not, the teachers are working hard, these kids still deserve it. And obviously the property taxes are lower in Richmond. It's a low-income area, but that's how we get our funding. That's something that definitely needs to be reevaluated. We don't have to fund our public school system based on property taxes. We could fund our school system based on some other system. The TOT budget. <laughs> the TOT budget. Yeah. <laughs> We could, you know, reprioritize what's important <laughs> and put all that money towards education because that's the future. Uh, that's the present. That's the present. I, I'm with you. Reprioritize. All right. Anything else you'd like to add? I would say if anyone's listening and they want to do something, my mom heard about my college thing. and was like, I wish I was there. I know so much. It's like you live close to Philadelphia. Go find a teacher who wants some help with an after school program and do it. I mean, the smallest little thing can have a huge impact. You might not ever know and you don't need to. If you have a skill and you have time to share it, then do. Very well said, Katie. I'd love it if people start thinking more about education actively people need to bring a focus to whether or not you have students in the public education system start advocating take responsibility for the people around you we're all responsible for each other in some sort of way and very well said thank you so much thank you katie thank you felicia day it's been really very moving to talk to both of you and thank you for your hard work thank you <laughs> thanks, thanks. <laughs> 
That was Miss Katie Lanahan, now based in Portland, Oregon, and Miss Felicide Madupe from Berkeley, California. I'm Dr. Jay Shri Chandra, creator of Naging Now, a podcast about prioritizing well-being, on the web at neijingnow.org. Naging Now is independent and entirely listener-supported. If you enjoyed the clip, please share it with your friends, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and donate generously. Your support is essential to keeping Naging Now alive.